Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 18th, 2016, and it's Thursday. That means it's time for a listener call show. And actually, a couple of these calls are kind of old calls pulled up out of the archives. Call volume was light this week. If you've been wanting to get your call on the air, now's the time to get your call in. I am fresh out of calls. I had one call I didn't use this week, only one, because it was one of those calls where I couldn't really understand it. I have another call that I'm doing this week that's kind of hard to understand, but I did my best, and I think I get the gist of the call, and I'll give an answer to it. Remember, to make a call, call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Know what you're going to ask before you make the call. Maybe even write it down, ask your question, or make your point. And after that, go ahead and give me your details. If you do that, your call will go a lot smoother. Before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. 
ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year is 1734. I have Burn Baby Burn when the government licenses the news, and I have Daniel Boone is the common man. I'm going to read that one just because I've always liked the legend of Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone is born in Pennsylvania, and he will grow to become a legend in his own time. The icon of the American frontiersman, he will carry a rifle made in Pennsylvania, but it will be called the Kentucky Rifle because he will use it while tracking his way through the wilds of Kentucky. Frankly, everything beyond the Cumberland Gap is considered Kentucky. That includes Tennessee. During his explorations, he will establish a town of Boonesboro, catchy name. It will be one of the first towns to be established beyond the Appalachians. During the American Revolution, the government will be short on cash, so they will offer certificates backed by land grants. Most of those grants will be for land west of the Appalachians. Despite Boone's efforts, Kentucky will remain a dark and bloody country for years and years. After the war, those land-grant certificates will be redeemed for pennies on the dollar, and Daniel Boone will lose a lot of money on land speculation in Kentucky. My take by Alex Shrugged. It's difficult to separate the myth from the man. Daniel Boone, he led an exploration of the Cumberland Gap through the Appalachian Mountains, but the path was already known to the Indians. They traveled through the area often, which is how it came to the attention of Dr. Thomas Walker. He's the one that gave it the name Cumberland Gap to honor the Duke of Cumberland, the youngest son of King George II. Many others have traveled through Kentucky. So while we give Daniel Boone credit for blazing a trail for the new colonists, he was not the first. He was only the best remembered. Many heroic actions and chivalrous adventures are related to me, which only exist in regions of fantasy. With me, the world has taken great liberties, and yet I have been but a common man, Daniel Boone. Very interesting. Um, here's my kind of take on this. Daniel Boone came from Kentucky to Pencil, from, from, from Pennsylvania to Kentucky, and he took the Pennsylvania rifle with him, and now we have the Pennsylvania rifle and the Kentucky rifle. If you look at the history of America until we get to real innovations in, in rifles, those were the two terminologies used to describe rifles, you know, things that went beyond the musket. And uh, he didn't just take that there. There... And time came to be very finely made rifles made by people who settled in Kentucky. Later in history, after Washington becomes our first president with a need to raise capital, we'll have one of our first taxes in this country, the whiskey tax, excise tax on distilled spirits. And everybody thinks about Pennsylvania in that. And a lot of this distillation kind of tradition went with people who left Pennsylvania and went west, seeking even further remoteness and to be left alone. And uh, when the Whiskey Rebellion came to its end and the problem was supposedly solved, a lot of the folks that had left Pennsylvania and even some that left during this and gone on to places like Kentucky continued to just do their thing and not pay the flipping tax on it. And the government never really acknowledged it, but they weren't able to do it. And there's... Because of the way that that region was settled out of central and western Pennsylvania, there's actually a lot of similarities between Pennsylvania and Kentucky and, and that whole region. And, and what's interesting to me is the people I used to work with from the cities, the big cities like you know Boston and New York and Providence, Rhode Island, used to actually refer to Pennsylvania as Pennsylvania. 
let's say Pennsylvania, you have Pittsburgh and you have Philadelphia and everything in the middle is Kentucky and they meant as an insult. And having been, you know, raised in Pennsylvania, I'd say, so what's your point? And uh, I think that usually drove it home that I, I was actually much more comfortable in rural Pennsylvania or central Texas than I would ever be in any giant city. And I, I think that is what actually drove the exploration of this country and the settling of this country. People moved from areas of greater concentration in general to areas of lesser concentration. And at some point, these settlements went from villages and towns to actually in certain areas with certain resources available becoming cities. And then people said, you know, this is why we left in the first place and continued to move out. Just my take by Jack Spearco. No big historical lessons there, just a couple observations. Next uh, next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. You can help support this show by joining the MSB or Members Support Brigade, or as I call it. All you have to do is get on over to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more and sign up there. And remember, whenever you want to go to the website, tspc.co, tspc.co, shortcut to get to thesurvivalpodcast.com. I'll redirect you. Right there. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. Before I do, though, I actually want to do a bit of follow-up on yesterday's show. Because I got a comment that I understand the individual's frustration, but it also maybe didn't make a lot of sense to me in that it seems like the person was coming from a big place of perception bias. This was from Mike in West Virginia. He said, I listened to this for two hours and didn't hear any actual solutions. And of course, that was dealing with bullying yesterday's show for dealing with a bully. Mad props to Jack for asking the question flat out. How do we as parents deal with a child who's being bullied and take them out of the school is not an option. Guess answer. Explore all options. WTF does that mean? Take them out of school. Didn't Jack just say that's not an option? Uh, next, give the child a healthy relationship with a therapist to build confidence. Seriously, a shrink solution is to go to a shrink. Are you kidding me? Next, send them to work with grandpa for the summer. What WTF does that do for the kid right now? Does he even have a grandpa? The guest does a fine job of talking about all the things that don't solve the problem with parents presents no real solutions. He compares schools to jails. While I agree, he estimates to never having actually been to jail. He talks about how hard it is on children to relocate in the middle of the school year. Again, while I agree, here once again he admits he has never actually had the experience. Jack puts forward the closest thing to the solution by saying you should contact the kid's parents. The guest answers that he has no experience in this either. Uh, that's not what he said, by the way. Uh, at the end of the show, Jack realizes that no solutions have come up. In response to this guest, he says, you should try to figure out the best way you can, while really anything else capped and obvious. I guess that's directed at me. Uh, listening to this guy is like listening to a real shrink, going to a real shrink, words come out of his mouth, but no meaning is conveyed. He just presents no real solutions and just tells you to keep coming back. At least I didn't pay money for this bull crap. Oh, yeah. Here, I'm going to read the response that I wrote on the blog to Mike. And I'm not picking on Mike here because I think that Mike clearly had some bad experiences that this has chipped a scab or a wound with. And it may be bad experiences with therapists. It may be bad experiences with friends who use therapists. It may be bad experience for himself being the victim of a bully. I don't know. But there's a massive perception bias here because if you actually listen to what was said yesterday, it's hard to come away with this. But I, here's what I said. I, I, you sound like perception bias is clouding your judgment. Discounting the recommendation of counseling just because it comes from a counselor is nothing but an ad hominem attack. 
Seriously, I bet if my friend's son Clinton, who I mentioned yesterday, had done so, he might not have effing hung himself from his closet door with his belt. And I, I believe that. I'm uh, coming off my response here for a second. My, my best friend at the time, well, I wouldn't say he's my best friend now, but one of the best friends I've ever had in my life lost his son, and I believe that bullying was a big part of what made his son take his life even after he was out of school because of the damage it was done. And I believe had he sought counseling, it may not have made the bullies go away, but he'd still be with us. And I bet if my friend could go back in time and get his son help in those early teen and middle teen years, he'd do it in a heartbeat, no matter what it took. And if getting him out of school was not an option, he might have found an option if he thought his son's life was at risk. Okay, Back to my response in text. If that isn't blunt enough, let me use some logic. If a person is going through or has gone through traumatic experiences and is having difficulty coping with it, should they at least consider professional counseling? Counseling. I think one would have to be a dimwit to say no to that question, don't you? I mean, really, if somebody's gone through a really tough time and they're, they're being traumatized by it, bothered by it, it's affecting their life, and they're having trouble processing it, does it make sense to recommend counseling? I, I think it does, okay? Okay, next. Is being a bully's target, especially an unrelenting bully's target, a traumatic experience? So now I think one could pretty much lay that to rest. Huh? Right? I mean, there's just basic logic there. Next, I'm going to grandpa's for the summer. If someone who did that as a child, I will tell you what I learned to think like an adult. I also learned to have fun on my own without need for others. I did get a good workout daily, and I did put muscle on. Now, none of this was to deal with a bully, but I can say the experience would indeed help. If nothing else, it's its own form of therapy. A child can't see the future as adults do. They really feel that life will always be as it is now, going away to a place totally different where none of the piddly effing bullshit exists it destroys that illusion. A child can now see normal people don't do this shit. This is the product of where I... This is... This is a product of where I'm at in my life right now, and it will change. My ending comments were to the macro problem, not to the individual problems. There is no real answer to the systemic problem other than ending the system that perpetuates it. So just like I must choose how and when I work with the interactive edge of the state as an anarchist, a person or a parent with a child in a government school must choose how to personally deal with the harm that it causes. I'd like to pause there for my response for a second. I want to drive that, that point home. I believe sending children to government schools harms them. The ones that do the worst, it harms a great deal. The ones that do the best, it harms in a way. It programs them to accept belief systems, almost at a religious nature, in response to the state itself. It puts them into situations where they abuse others and or are abused. And no child goes to school and is not abused on some level by other children and doesn't in some way partake in abusing on others because the system creates that for them. Okay? That is the truth. Back to my written response. Oh, and this is a school problem, not a government school problem. I spent four years in Catholic school. In some ways, it was worse. Why? Okay, in every forced social group, this happens. A conventional school of any kind is a forced group. You, you cannot deny that. If you set up conventional school, 
and a kid has to go and can't leave till the end of the day and can't go somewhere else and can't say, I don't want this class anymore. I want to take a different class. I want to hang out with different people. I want to be in a different situation. If you can't leave, it's a forced system. Okay? So it, that's where I'm at there. In government schools, though, by, say, about fifth grade, kids have different classes and teachers. They move from class to class, and who is in class with them every class changes. So when Johnny goes from history to science, not all the classmates that he had in history are with him in science. You got that? But in Catholic school, they're so small, you go to the next teacher, every class member comes with you. For the child being bullied, there's, there's no escape. So a lot of times kids have one or two kids that pick on them in school, and they might share in the classroom a couple times, or have to deal with them in the hallway, but there's certain points during the day where they're in different classes. Maybe the teacher's really strict in that class. Maybe they sit in the front or the back of the room, and the kids are separated from them. But in, in, a, in a, like a small private school, if you've got kids that are bullying another kid, they can't get away. You understand that, too. So it's not just put them in a, in a private school and the problem will go away. All right? Um, And my last comments to the commenter were, I think you are biased against counselors and thereby blind to many of the real solutions given today. Frankly, Dorothy and I, it's my wife for those who are new to the show, have discussed a program-level solution on and off for bullying for over seven years now, and we still have no solution. I have to agree with Trevor. The solution here is you, the parent, deal with it because your child's life is at stake. No matter what it is, you have to deal with it. So I think what Trevor actually said, you still consider getting them out of the school. When I said moving them is not an option, he's, what he's saying to that is it's always an option. There's always a way if you really want to. And if it's bad enough that your kid could end up damaged for the rest of their life or dead because they've taken their own life, then you figure shit out and you get it done. And that's not always the case. And see, that's the thing. It's not always the case. But the big reason I wanted to cover this today, I think the blowback with take the child that's being bullied and get them into counseling is because people see it, the person being counseling is the one with the problem internally. Okay, So in other words, the, the kid being bullied doesn't need counseling. The bully's the one that needs counseling. He's the one that's got the messed up head. He's the one that's victimizing people. Why are you sending the victim to a counselor like he's done something wrong? Okay, when you have cancer, you go to a doctor to get treatment, you haven't done anything wrong. Now, if you smoked your whole life and you have lung cancer, okay, we can make that case. But having a problem doesn't mean that you did something wrong. If a person is walking down the street minding their own business and they're attacked by someone who beats them, rapes them, steals from them, and leaves them laying bleeding in the street, and they're alive, and we take them to the hospital, and we put them back together, and they're made physically whole again, if they're mentally traumatized, and we recommend that they see a counselor, we're not saying that it's their fault that they were beaten and robbed and raped. Do you get that? See, and I think that's the resistance, that if you are the one going to counseling, you are the one that is, has a problem. The child being bullied does have a problem. And it's not necessarily a problem that they created, but they have a problem. They have a bully messing up their life. And they need to figure shit out so that they can deal with it because there is no easy answer. 
And for many, seeing a counselor might be a good idea because it helps them process things and it helps them understand people do get what's going on. Not everybody's going to tell you just ignore them or put up your hand and say stop or go tell a teacher, right? Because it because someone that's actually an adult that's outside of that system acknowledges to you as a kid, yeah, I get it, man. And sometimes that's the most important thing for for a child to understand. Yeah, you're right. You're right. This is a big problem. We have to figure out how to get through. So, Trevor said with some of his, his patients, what it says is we have to figure out how to survive this together because it's only for a time. Now, I wish there was a macro solution. And I know what it is. What it is is to rip from us under the public education system, the government education system, to abolish, to absolutely abolish, to get rid of, to destroy, to topple, to lay my hand upon it and sink it to the bottom of the ocean, that which is compulsory education. Because compulsory means that you have little part-time prisons, period, the end, over and out, no other option. That is the solution. To create education is a 100% voluntary association where any child that has been singled out by any group of assholes can either leave or those assholes have to leave. To where there is no public responsibility to educate a kid that's being a prick to another kid. To put him into a position where he realizes, I either have to cut this shit out or I'm out. Because there's only so many times that you're asked to leave before no one will have you. Well, then they don't get a good education. I'd rather the person causing the problem not get the good education than the person who's having the problem caused for them. And let me tell you what else this does. When that situation is what it is, it begins to identify the people that are actually doing the bullies. If you want a solution here, it's to make sure that when there's a bully, we know who they are. And we go grab them by the ass and take them aside and determine, why are you doing this? And then we either give them gentle correction that helps them become more productive members of society, or if they're the, one of the 10% of people in society that are freaking psychopaths, we make sure they can't abuse other people. And it cannot be done in a government system where we believe that everybody's entitled to equality. Because that's the problem. Not everybody is entitled to equality. People who are assholes are not entitled to be treated as good as people who are good, decent people. That, that is that If that's not blunt enough for you. People who excel at education are entitled to move faster than the people around them and not be held back. People who don't want to learn are not entitled to have educations spoon-fed to them. Parents with children who won't take responsibility for their children, are not entitled for you and I to step up and be responsible on their behalf. And the fact that there's a pseudo-responsibility put in place by government institutions gives these parents the freedom to jack off life, okay? That's the truth. That's why That's why people like my sister-in-law have a kid that's a problem in class and get reached out to the parents and say, you need to come in and we need to talk about Johnny because Johnny's creating a problem for the whole class. And the parents say, okay, and just don't flip and show up. If that wasn't an institution of coercion, then my sister-in-law could say, Johnny, you're flipping out. Bye-bye. But I don't want to go. 
Should have thought of that. The last five times I corrected you, see you later. Instead, what happens is my sister-in-law sends Johnny to the principal. The principal says, Johnny, go back to class. That's the sum total of it. You wonder why our kids are abused. We created an abusive freaking system. So when a, when a psychologist comes on and says, I can't fix the system, don't attack him for being one of the few damn people you've ever heard other than me to tell you the flipping truth. And that'll lower my blood pressure. Let's hear from a caller on something a little less blood pressure raising. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Sean up here in Pennsylvania. Just kind of came across something that I thought was pretty neat. Um, maybe you've already talked about it, but there's a website called uh, www.historicarials, all one word, .com, and you can put your uh, put your street address or your property address in there and look at uh, some older time series of aerial photos of, of uh, you know, whatever property you might be looking at or your property that you own. Uh, <clears throat> where I'm finding it useful, we're looking at uh, some farm properties And uh, in PA, there's some issues with, in many states, uh, with wetlands. But if you can find prior history of that property being cropped, uh, it's a little bit easier to do what you what you want with the land. So I uh, just thought I'd share that with everybody. And uh, take a look, post a link if you think it's worthwhile. Take care. Thanks for all you do. Well, <clears throat> two things here. Um, we'll start out with... This is not picking on the collar. This is kind of like what I do when I see people posting vertical videos. And I'll post a little public service announcement video for those of you who have never seen it today, for those of you shooting vertical videos on your iPhone. So we'll put that in check for a second. But I would like everybody to commit in the future to when you're giving a website address to stop saying www. It's redundant and unnecessary and unnecessary even to type Um, it would be kind of like saying, um, my address is a street with the number, you know, 743 Mockingbird Terrace. Like, everybody knows it's a street with a number. You don't have to say a street with a number. And it's kind of what WWW is. So please stop that, especially if you are a person promoting your business or something like that, which this person wasn't. Next, I checked out the site, and it is interesting. Um, Uh, historicarials.com and I have a link in the show notes for you and you can go take a look at it and it goes back pretty far honestly um, my issue is that the pictures are really really grainy and distorted even the modern ones and so much so that when I put my own address in it was I had to like pull up like a Google Earth image to even figure out exactly because when I put my address in it didn't go it didn't put a marker on it And it didn't really go to where it exactly was on the road. It was hard. And I you know, I look at my aerial imagery all the time. And I was finally able to figure, okay, that's where my hat. I'm talking about the 2012 version, not the 1969 aerial image. So it's grainy. And then it has these copyright notices all over it. So you can't just use a picture of it. Um, which I understand, but it makes the problem a little worse. It has a button that says purchase, and it's for purchasing imagery. Um I, I don't know if that means it'll be a better picture when I purchase it, or it's just going to remove the copyright notices or whatever, or is there a a purchase where I can remove that crap so I can use it with a clearer image and nothing in my way, uh, like as a service? And I wasn't able to tell because it was too complicated for me to do, but it, it is interesting. 
What I'd also like to point out, though, is you can get a lot of imagery uh, at USGS as well, and I have a link to where you can get, including older imagery. Next up, if you use Google Earth, now maybe there's a way to do this online. I'm not sure on, you know, when you just use Google Maps and switch to the Earth view, but I haven't seen it there. But I mean actual, like you download the Google Earth uh, program for your computer, and then you open it as, a, as an application, and you type in an address. There are options to look at past archived versions of the imagery. Now, this doesn't go back to the 70s, obviously, because this is Google Earth imagery, but you can go back almost 10 years now on some images. And it's interesting to look, you go back, and they're not quite as good as they are now. Now, next, what I wanted to tell you guys about aerial imagery. I don't think they'll ever update what they did. So the images are several years old or maybe a little older than that. But nothing beats the bird's eye view on Bing. Yes, I said Bing, Bing Maps, which is, you know, MSN search, Bing, whatever the hell they want to call themselves now, search engine. But if you go there and you use their maps and you pull up the bird's eye view of a property, it looks like what it is. It's not a satellite image. It's literally a picture taken from an aircraft. And I think they did this like everywhere, you know, in the United States anyway. And the picture's kind of a little bit of an angle. It's not a direct overhead. So it gives a really good layout view of a property. You know, the problem I have is the one of my property is from about, I could say, by looking at it two years before I bought it, and it's never been updated, where the Google satellite imagery has been updated twice since I bought the property. And I'm chomping at the bit, man. I want them to do, now we have to pause, like everything's pretty much done. I need one more time to do it so I have it for presentations and, and write-ups and stuff. And it just won't do it now, you know. The swells are in there, but they got it in the summer when the trees were full and you couldn't really see the outlines of some of them and the pond wasn't there yet and the west pasture wasn't restored yet, so. Um, but just know there's a lot of different sources of historic imagery and, and don't say www. Now the vertical video. Uh, I even kicked around playing the audio, but it doesn't really work. I'm going to put a link to a video today for vertical video syndrome. These are you guys with your smartphones, your Androids, your iPhones, whatever. You take a video, and it's a cool video. Like It's not just like a video for your friends and family, though it applies there too, but it's a video you're going to put online like, here's my, my, my setup for my homestead on, on how to do X, Y, and Z. And we're like, cool, and it's a vertical video. If you don't know what a vertical video is, it means your phone is vertical. Turn it horizontal. TV screens are horizontal. Watch this, this PSA so you know the evil you're committing with vertical video and commit to not doing it anymore. Um, I think it'll make your day to watch the video anyway. Again, it will be in today's show notes. And with that, we'll take another one. Jack, hey, how you doing? Hey, uh, I got a question about uh, gray water and using that for... Uh, irrigation for gardening, both on annual and uh, perennial uh, crops. Um, originally, uh, back a while ago, I uh, I uh, diverted all of my well, most of the gray water in my house. So the uh, you know the the shower, the washing machine, the dishwasher. Um, into a, a French drain that I had built. Well, that French drain is pretty much getting clogged up. Plus, I've planted a couple of food forests, and I've got a big, uh, uh, 
a row garden, you know, a square foot garden, 80 foot square foot garden. So, um, anyway, I, uh, I was thinking about, uh, putting that into an IBC, uh, or two and then using that, uh, to water my, um, my garden. What I'm worried about or thinking about is, uh, soaps and, uh, how that may affect, um, you know, the uh, fertility and the soil life and things like that. Uh, what, obviously, I know I want to use uh, natural soaps, uh, but I just wondered if you had any input on that. Thanks. Okay, gray water systems are not something I've personally built yet, though I've taken a look at quite a few of them. And what I did for this one to help the caller specifically was look for kind of the best online tutorial. Here's how to build a simple grade water filtration system with wicking beds and reeds and things like that. Because there's a ton of stuff on it. But the guy that I found, and I went through about six different uh, people looking at what they were doing and spent almost an hour on this one issue this morning, just to give you an idea of sometimes how much reason. Well, all he did was post a YouTube video. Yeah, I have almost an hour into this one. A guy named Wade, Wayne Meter. And um, the approach he uses is really simple. Anyone can do it, and it'll work. And that's what I wanted for this. And, but I want to talk about with a gray water filtration system, the why behind it. If you just pump gray water into a tank and you run it through some sort of a, a, a drip irrigation system and you use it to water perennials and even annuals and you water to the ground, you probably have nothing to worry about in general. Okay, in general. But it's still not a best practice. One, because you're going to end up clogging the hell out of your drip system. You don't want to spray this stuff on top of things. Because this is, this is not toilet water, right, guys? This is things that go down the sink. If it goes down the sink or the shower drain, it goes to gray water. If it goes down the toilet, it goes to what we call black water. Totally different systems. But the problem is fats and oils, I mean, those are your biggest problems. When you take a shower, even, well, I'm going to use biodegradable soap and whatever, there's still some level of an oil or fat in the soap. Lye soaps are very natural soaps, homemade soaps. But, you know, think about what they're made from. But it's not just the, it's you. What happens when you don't take a shower for a couple days because you're camping? What is your hair like? It's greasy and oily. We produce grease and oils. Oils that come off our bodies, our hands, our fingers, everything, right? Skin flakes. And then when we put things down, let's say a sink, the food products and stuff to go down a sink or a disposal, there's usually fats associated with those on some levels. So these can be really bad if they get on leaves of plants, which is why you would want to go to a drip system. And a way to, we can make sure that this doesn't happen is to filter things out and let it pass through uh, a gravel bed type system, which is what this video will show you how to do. There's another big reason I wanted to include this guy's call is that it, it's not just to help him. It's to prevent misery for other people. So what a lot of people have thought would be a good idea with gray water is I'll build a little pond. And at the tail end of that little pond, I'll put a whole bunch of reeds and cattails and stuff and let that pond overflow through that system, and that'll filter things like a lagoon-based system. Will this work? Yeah, it'll work. But you have a lot of oils and fats in the water. And what is one of the big things I've gotten people doing in this day and age from TSP with homesteading? Keeping ducks. Ducks swim. 
But if ducks get fats and oils that are not their own special stuff that they groom themselves with on their feathers, they can actually sink and drown. So there's actually been stories where people have created these ponds and they dump gray water into the pond. And the ducks go in and their ducks drown or they get, they get really nasty and they don't, they're not healthy and they're not happy and their feathers are matted and things like that. So if you wanted to do a gray water to pond solution, you put it through a gravel filtration system first, then overflow it to a pond, and then do whatever you want to with it. And I think either of those solutions is better than let's just pump gray water into an IBC and then run it as irrigation. I think it's a, a much better idea. Now, it also depends on what you mean by gray water. If, if you're, all your gray water ends up being is water from your sink, and, you ins and you, you're, you're religious about the fact that nothing fatty goes in there, that pretty much all of your waste goes to compost piles and stuff, and there's very little residue, then you probably won't have a problem. But if you're include, you know, that means also when you have to wash your hands, you go to a different sink. Yeah, and you're not using your dishwasher, your hand washing, right? So it's just easier. It's just easier because then you can take all your gray water, And it's a great reuse of water. The only reason I haven't done it here is, is, is difficult because all of the plumbing's in the slab of the foundation and digging any kind of a hole is difficult. And I have ducks that are going to jack with any kind of a system like this guy's built. But when I look at what he's done, I'm like, this is great that this call came in because it's probably not a this year project. I'm way too far behind on way too many things. But I look at this and go, yeah, I could build a gray water system like this. I think this is one of the easiest, simplest, and most effective ways to build a gray water filtration system. So, again, the guy's name is Wayne Meter, and I, I endorse what he's doing highly just by looking at it, understanding the system, and knowing what it takes to build one, and seeing how simple and easy he's made it, and how he's then pushed it into a self-wicking garden bed after the fact to reuse the water yet again before you can do something else with it. Outstanding stuff. Check it out. Again, the guy's name, Wayne, W-A-Y-N-E. Last name, Meter, M-E-A-D-O-R. That's his channel name and his personal name. Uh, he's got a lot of great stuff available on YouTube and uh, might be a guy we even have as a guest someday. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Actually, before I uh, play the next call, I want to give some context for people that are new to the show uh, and some history from just about a month ago. Uh, th this... Uh, podcast has an amazing community behind it. You're about to hear the, the power of that and real gratefulness for it. Um, but over the years, we have certain people that are regular callers. I guess every radio show, whether online, podcast, not in real time, or live show, have people like that. And after a while, some of those people actually become a part of the show. They actually become... Uh, a personality on the show, like they're they're known, they're like a a a, a, a co-host a little bit or something like that in some levels, and I think our most well-known person like that is a guy named John from West Virginia, and if you've never heard him before, when you hear, hear his voice alone, you'll you'll hear why. But he's called in with some really cool stuff and really interesting observations over the years, uh, and I would say that John probably would not be uh, insulted at all for calling him a West Virginia hillbilly as a especially if I'm doing it as a, a, a Pennsylvania hillbilly that's now a Texas redneck. Um, and the, you know, the best way that could be. But John um, had some problems in his life, and it, it was you know, from alcoholism, and realized he was putting himself in a position where he's probably going to drink himself to death. And I'm all for having a drink, but, I mean, 
if you have that problem, you have to do something about it. And there's people that just get to a point in your life that you realize if you're, you have two choices, stop drinking cold or, or you can end up dead or at least in severe problems. John met that problem head on and decided to put himself into inpatient care, and he's back. And when he went, he called in and left a call that was really kind of heart-wrenching, saying, I need some help, I need some support to get through this. And the support that came out, just in the blog alone, was massive. And I know of at least one person in this audience that's reached out and actually called John uh, since he's been back. And that person never uh, met John in real life. He's also a person that's well-known to this audience, but I'm not going to reveal who it is unless that person wants to be revealed or unless John wants them revealed. I know certain, certain things are kind of personal. But, I mean, think about the fact that some things like this are really personal when you hear from John right now. And uh, these are the types of things that when they happen at this podcast make me realize how important what we do really is. John, how are things going? Hey, Jack. It's John in West Virginia. I'm back. Uh, I just want to thank everybody for it. Uh, I'm getting a little emotional, man. Uh, all the support and uh, the prayers and just the amount of support you guys showed to me, man, it's unprecedented. It's It means so much to me. The, the, the amount of support that you guys showed me is... I just I can't describe it. It's, it's not a community. It's it's a family. That it's I, I have no words for it. Just the the amount of support, the community. The I'm speechless. I really am. But John from West Virginia is back. And I'm I'm 33 days sober. I'm thinking clear. I'm feeling better. It's going to be a long road to hoe, but I'm going to make it. Uh, I figure I'd check in and uh, let everybody know. But I really appreciate it. And, uh, I'll keep everybody posted, man, but I, I really appreciate everything you guys have done and all the support. But uh, the whole addiction thing, man, it's... It's... It's, it's a... It's a dangerous thing. I just want people to be aware of that. It can sneak up on you. It did me. But I really appreciate it, guys. And just keep your heads up. This is John West Virginia. You ain't heard the last of me. I'll be back. Thanks, guys. Well, I'm I'm for one very happy to have John back with us, and and I know he's gonna beat this I, because. When you willingly take a step like he did, you mean it. And uh, I, I want to just say a few words about addiction. I mean, this is an alcohol situation, but it's an addiction situation. And I think that it's important that we realize that there are people that have their lives destroyed from various addictions. And sometimes they're substance addictions and sometimes they're behavioral addictions. My father, God bless him, is a good man, but our family greatly suffered from his addiction to work. And his addiction to work was a direct result of his misery of his home life. Because on the other side of my family, some of you wonder why I have such distance from my family at this point, is it's self-defense. 
my mother had various substance uh, addictions and and other addictions to lifestyles that I'll just leave out. Let's just say a person that I, at this point, don't even see as anything other than another person. I know some of you think that's really, really cold, but... I know who raised me. My grandmothers on both sides at different times in my life were my mothers. They were they did the job and they get the credit for it. You know, just like some of you that are step parents that stepped in where another person walked away. It doesn't matter that you share that you know the child shares blood with someone else. They share a much greater bond with you because you did the job. I believe I did that as a stepfather. I believe the reason I was able to do that as a stepfather is I separated myself from that toxic situation. That was my home life. I don't talk about that a lot, but when if you're going to talk about addiction, you have to relate it to things you know. And I know what addiction does. There are people that are addicted to pornography. There are people uh, that are addicted to other uh, behaviors, and there are people that can engage in all the things that people get addicted to uh, socially and not have a problem. And I think it's important that. We acknowledge that, and then we acknowledge that a lot of times when people get into the point where they're addicted to something, they don't they don't know they have a problem, or they don't want to admit it. And I'd say follow John's example. If you think you have a problem, like if there's times you sit down and go, I wonder if I have you, yes, yes. Now how bad is it, and how much correction does it take, that's individual. But in general, if it's to the point where you can answer that question with a yes, You need some help with it. And don't be afraid to seek help. This is, after all, the Survival Podcast. And uh, we're starting to delve into some worlds that are not what I intended at all when I started this show. Suicide from bullying, addictions that can take your life or destroy it. But if we're going to talk about survival, then we need to talk about the threats to our survival. And you are a hell of a lot more likely to destroy your liver with alcohol or your life with with drugs that you're using in an an improper way, including prescription drugs, or to have your child face misery that could actually drive them to do horrible things than you are to to, to have to deal with uh, uh, the, the total, complete collapse of the global economy, which is what brings a lot of people to prepping. Remember, we always talk about preparing for the most likely scenarios, and the smaller the number of people affected by a disaster, the more likely it is that it will impact you, whether directly or indirectly. If you are a a, a spouse or a, a son or a daughter or a father or a mother of someone dealing with severe addiction issues, it affects you. Trust me, I know. So... Take John's advice. And I think the biggest thing, though, to take away from this is to realize what we've done with this podcast and the communities around it. This is a family. This is a family. Sometimes we fight and families fight. But this is a family. A pretty damn good family. I'll leave it at that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I just have a quick question about corporate trolls and corporate shills. Um, the Permaculture Voices people released uh, Paul Leighton's, um you know, speech on, you know, permies and other things like that. And he talked a lot about how permies had a lot of, you know, corporate trolls posting on the forums. He estimates that 50% of it was just, you know, people paid by corporations. Um, I was wondering what your, your thoughts on that were. All right, thanks for the show. Bye. 
Okay, I, I think I have this understood fairly well. I, I really do. Um, I think so, because what you just heard, guys, was amplified the maximum I can with my editing program two times. That was how quiet this, this gal was. So I'm guessing the gist of this is apparently Paul, in one of his talks at Permaculture Voices, said that there's professional trolls on his forum at permies.com. And, pro and professional corporate shills. Now, I actually think, personally, the word troll is being misapplied here. Corporate shill, fine. And I want to talk about that, too, in just a second. But trolls, to me, are people that start shit, not people that troll. So a corporate shill is somebody that comes in and goes, hey, I found this really interesting thing that this company's doing over here. And they look like some random person from the, 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 the community who's just interested in it, wants everybody's opinion on it, but what they're really doing is saying, come look at my shit, okay? To me, that's a little bit of a corporate shill. Now, we'll talk about how that works here in just a second. A troll is someone who, and I've dealt with my share of trolls, especially on Facebook, just hates what you're doing and comes in and uses the same type of tactic, but their purpose isn't to get you to go look at the next whiz-bang contraption or realize that this company's chemicals really aren't evil or whatever it is. It's to start shit. It's to make people hate each other, fight each other, backstab each other, to start making your moderators actually question people who really are just doing what the trolls pretending to do so that you start you know, creating discord and things like that. And Boy, we've had our share of them since we started that regenerative agriculture group on Facebook. I'm thinking it could be because we're going to hit 10,000 people in four months. That, that's why I think it's happening. Uh, if we were out piddling around with 20 or 30 people, no one would care. So when you become successful, and Paul's forum is the biggest forum on the Internet about permaculture, and it's one of the biggest forums, period. If you look at the amount of traffic that goes to permies.com, it is massive. Paul has really built kind of an empire there with permies. And he runs his forum the following way, which I thought was ludicrous until now I'm running my Facebook group almost the same way. Everybody is assumed awesome until they do something to prove themselves not awesome. And then they can go be not awesome somewhere else, which means you don't say shit bad about anybody else. You can disagree with their opinion. You can discuss why you think you have a better way, but you don't. Paul goes so far as to say you can't even tell somebody else on my forum that they're wrong. So this has created a lot of bad blood. So I know he has professional trolls, little scummy people who Paul now lives inside their head, right? who come try to cause shit for Paul, okay? Then you're talking about a corporate shill. This is a form of underhanded viral marketing. This is a different thing. And I don't think this is about permies, right? I think this is about Internet forums and interactions and groups and Facebook groups and online communities. Everywhere this is a problem. So... We go and we build a group of 10,000 people sharing ideas about regenerative agriculture. Our, our forum here for the show is 10,000 plus people just for this show. There's people there discussing a niche and they represent an opportunity to market. That's why we can put advertising on our forum and make a bit of money. But no advertising is stronger than apparent just third party recognition of something being good. This happens on Yelp. This happens all over the place. You can, if, if I'm a company, you know, if, if, if I'm, 
if I am a chain restaurant, okay, and I want to give a name because then I'm going to infer that they've done it. But if I'm a large chain restaurant with, let's say, 50 uh, restaurants nationwide, about one per state, I'm not even that big, I'm still a pretty sizable organization. Now, what I could do is put five computers in my little, you know, corporate office and hire, you know, basically intern level people. And say, you guys just set up a whole bunch of accounts and start posting positive reviews. And every once in a while, put a four-star review. And then ha we'll have you go in as a company manager, follow up and say, what can we do to make it right? Things like that. And it's so easy to do. Why wouldn't these companies do this? And they certainly do. So this is how I look at it. The, the well-run communities, over time... People become recognized, valuable members of that community with social capital. And when that happens, then you know you're dealing with a real person. And when someone new shows up out of nowhere, it takes them time to earn that social capital in that new community. And this is, this is basic etiquette in online communities that people don't think about. But you, you don't see people doing this at Chamber of Commerce meetings. So somebody's a financial advisor, and they're trying to build their advisory And they go decide, I'm going to go down to Chamber of Commerce. Bad place to go because every other guy there is a financial advisor. But it doesn't really matter. You still get the point. So they go down and they decide, well, I'm going to go to like a function where there's like a dinner. Uh, you know, you pay to get in. There's a dinner and a networking thing. And maybe there's some kind of entertainment or whatever. And you meet people. You hobnob. And they walk in there. They're going to go around and they're going to talk to people, get to know people. What do you do? Here's what I do. Who's that person over there? What kind of opportunities exist here? What do you guys do other than just things like this? Is there ways I can help the community? You, you start to like kind of build a rapport with people. And then the natural extension is since you've developed a relationship that business may flow to you. Okay, This is legitimate above board. Now, if you just went in there and, and, and walked, you wouldn't walk in there and say, hey, I heard that so-and-so's financial advisory practice is in trouble. But there's this guy named so-and-so, and that guy's actually you, and he's doing, have you heard anything about him? That's what people are doing in these forums. Right? You wouldn't hire someone to go to the chamber, pretend to be somebody else, and say that. You also wouldn't walk into a chamber of commerce and go, everything you're doing is wrong, look at me, look at me, do what I say, which is what happens in online communities. So the thing is, trolls, shills, etc., are protected by space and time and anonymity. That's what makes them so effective online. But there's a big difference between shill and troll, and I think we should recognize that. Again, trolls are people that start shit, that cause trouble. Some of them just get off on it. Some of them have like a bone to pick with a particular individual. I mean, there's there's forums about trolling forums, right? There's like to teach you other techniques and all. Here's what I've noticed though about trolls. Trolls are always men. Trolls are, trolls are always male. Even if they create a female persona in their fake character, they're always guys. Women don't do this shit. That says something about growing up, doesn't it, guys? Grow the hell up, you guys that do this crap. Okay, now, the last thing, though, the shill word bothers me. Because it can be accurate or it can be an ad hominem attack. I've done talks where something like the subject of global warming's come up And my stance is I don't buy the man-made runaway global warming theory. I buy the, the, the grounded scientific theory that CO2 can raise the temperature of the planet a little bit. It's done so. It can't do much more. And the three amplifiers that are supposed to work with the CO2 to actually create the problem 
don't do what they say they do, and there's very good scientific proof of that. All right, but that's just so you know my stance. But I'll do a two-hour talk, and I'll mention this because it comes into some like you have to address it for one minute of two hours, and I'll get comments in a YouTube video. This guy is a shill for Shell Oil. Okay, I'm wearing blue jeans and freaking Wolverine boots and a T-shirt. I'm not a freaking shill for Shell Oil. I'm not even on Shell Oil's radar. I am insignificant to any oil, and I'm no friend of the oil companies whatsoever. The shill thing you have to be careful with. There's way too many people out there that are attacked as shills, right? Because they disagree with the people attacking them. Not for any grounding whatsoever. And if you go to a forum or community or a group, and you're like, I am the president of XYZ Company, and your little corporation does a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you are not a corporate shill for your own company. That's another thing. There's a, Especially in the permaculture world, there's this, there's this bifurcation of what Paul calls purples and browns. I'm to the point of calling them doers and whiners. Right? Doers and whiners, bureaucrats and missionaries, right? So the, the people, this is the Pornell's law bureaucracy, right? That in any organization, the, 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 the people most committed to the mission will get off their ass and go get shit done. And the people committed to the organization itself will control the organization. They'll stay at home. They'll be the bureaucrats. And they'll come up with policies and procedures. They don't actually ever do jackedly shit. And over time, the bureaucracy grows as the organization grows, as the missions make the company successful. The bureaucrats end up growing in number. They eventually get to the point where they control promotions and things like that, and they destroy and drag down the entire organization and make it ineffective. The problem for the purples, who are the bureaucrats in permaculture, that don't do shit, is there's no bureaucracy. There's no place for them. There's no one in power. There's no one in control. There's there's no authority. It's it's anarchist. Even the people that are like, I'm a permaculturist, Jack, and I get you on the brown purple thing, and I'm not a purple, but it, it's not. A, I'm not an anarchist, and I didn't say you were an anarchist. It's just an anarchist system. An anarchist system doesn't have the lack of rules. It has a lack of rulers. No, there's no one with the authority to come out and say, I revoke your status as a permaculturist. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. A certification in permaculture is only as valid as the person issuing it and the opinion of the market of the person that did it. That's it. There's no central authority. And that's why people in the permaculture world that want socialism and control and, and want to decide who gets to do what and what really is and what really isn't and want to control it, that's why they're so miserable. Because they have no job. There's nothing for them to do. So get off their ass and go get shit done. Which... Most of them, there's a few of them that are like that, that do, like, there's some people that hate me that I have tremendous respect for. They're all wrapped up in this crap, but they actually, on the other side of it, they still go do stuff, right? They're, they're out, you know, pasture-raising hogs, or uh, Michael Polarski is one that, like, hates me because I like guns. Skeeter is the, his nickname. I think he's one of the best practicing permaculturists there is. We disagree ideologically. I can look past that. He can't, right? So... That's how all this manipulates together, right? There's, it's not this simple thing, well, they're a shill. They're a troll. Well, are they? Or do they just disagree with you? Or they just have an opinion that you don't? But corporate shills are pretty easy to spot. 
Because they, they don't do anything but shill. They don't create, contribute value. Smart trolls, smart trolls come into an organization and pretend to help people for a while. And then they start little attacks and little bits of discord. And they cause a lot of shit. I'll tell you what the solution is. When you find one, you ban their ass. You just ban them. And then you ban them again, and you ban them again, and you ban them again until they get bored and they go somewhere else where somebody's not so well at running their community. I think Paul and I, and on our forum here at TSP, our moderators run really good communities. And we do a good job of enforcing our rules. And that's another thing that breeds hatred. Well, I went there and said what I wanted to say, and they told me I couldn't, so I told them to F off, and they banned me, and that's against my free speech. No, 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 no. That's not your free speech. It's not your forum. It's not your intellectual property. It's not you that pays the bill for the server. It's not you that employs the staff that manages it. It's not your property. And it's not public property. It's not government property. It's private property. And you don't get to decide how it's run. The people that run it do. That's called freedom and liberty. Yay. This is what I liken it to. Let's say you hated me. So you went out and bought a domain name, jackspiricosucks.com. And you put all kinds of horrible things about me up there. I can choose to respond to it. I can choose to ignore you. I can choose to do whatever you, I want to. But assuming you're not making physical threats of violence or calling for threats of violence against me or something like that, or doing things that are illegal or extremely immoral or actually damaging people with what you're doing, it's your free speech. You have a right to do it. You have a right to express your opinion that I suck all that you want. If you come to my house and spray paint Jack Spirico sucks on my door, I'm not required to leave it there so that your free speech can be honored. I'm not even required to not kick your ass while you're damaging my property. You're not trespassing on my private property, defacing it, and using it in a way that I see as unfit. Okay? That applies to forums and That's why they, that's why when you set up a, a page on Facebook and you set up moderators, you have the, the power from Facebook to remove shit. Because that's the way it works. And it, it's amazing to me, like, this, this crap was some one group of you idiots out there. And I know some of you listen, even though you hate me, right? That, like, he banned me and he claims to be an anarchist. You clearly don't know what anarchist means. Anarchist doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want in my area of, of control where we are voluntarily associating with each other. Being an anarchist means I respect your right to go do that somewhere else. And if you want to do things with my community, you do it with my rules. You want to do it with Paul's community, you do it with his rules. You want to do it with some random guy we'll call Tom's community, you do it with Tom's rules. Deborah's or Becky's or Sue's or Tamara's or whatever you come up with. But the, the group that's created the association, done the work to build it, sets the rules. That's anarchy, you dumbass. I mean, seriously. It's like, it's like people think that they know what a word means, and then they go around making themselves look stupid by misapplying the word. Anyway, let's move on to another one. I think I've said enough on that. Hi, Jack. This is John from Central Texas. Uh, you've been talking recently about how you're going to be gone to Permaculture Voices, and you've hired somebody to come in and take care of your property while you're gone. This summer... Um, Our family is going to be gone for a week or so, and so I'm going to have to hire somebody to come in and take care of our place. Now, they won't have to stay on site, but 
We've got uh, around 30 sheep and goats, about 70 chickens, a few pigs, cats, uh, and uh, some breeder rabbits. It'll probably take around an hour, hour and a half a day. So my question is, what seems to be a reasonable amount that I should pay them for their effort of coming out and taking care of our property? Thank you for all you do. Bye. First of all, John, hey, man, good to hear from you. John's been to my place a couple times for events, and I always enjoy coming here and Hey, man, bring me some more amaretto next time you come. Anyway, uh, here's how we did it. I just said, I'm going to pay 75 bucks a day. And then when people said they were willing to do it, I said, well, what are your qualifications? And the first person to respond had good qualifications. So if they wanted it, I gave it to them. Just first come, first serve. And they did. And I said, well, this is how much it pays. Is that okay? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, done deal. That's, that's what I did. And, and I look at it this way. If someone was going to be here, they could still do their job if they had a computer and they did it remotely. Or if it was someone, and what it ended up being was a, was a, a mom that homeschools bringing her kids with her. And they could divide the work up and it would be experience and it'd be educational and it'd be, you know, and, and but what would make it worth it? What would cover the expense because they're traveling here and what have you? Uh, and if they'd been local, what would be enough money that I feel like not only would they be compensated well, but beyond just the the promise of your word, the conversation was such you'd feel an obligation to do a good job. You know, I also looked at it this way: What would it cost me if, while I'm gone, my birds aren't taken care of? And I mean, we're it, it's coming to springtime now, baby. The birds are crapping out the eggs. They, I think they put out like 60 today, five dozen, right? So I'm thinking two more weeks, we're going to be putting out seven dozen a day. Well, the last time when I had one of the people who was here didn't take care of them, they dropped their egg production to nothing. Well, what would that cost me alone just if my egg production goes to crap? Or I look at and say, what's the value of one of my ducks? Just one girl. For three years, and it's a little over 300 bucks in production. So if I lost five of them because they died, you know that's 1,500 bucks over three years. You know what? what if, if something went bad wrong that I think these people will prevent, how much would I pay to put it back? That's another way that I look at it, and just what's reasonable, you know. So I look at it is it's probably four hours of work a day. Because a person coming to do it that's not accustomed to doing it our way is going to take longer to do it. So at 20 bucks an hour is about 80 bucks. And I think as a contract rate, a contract rate, I think it's very fair for this kind of work. So I put it at 75 just because I don't remember why. You know, but I mean, I think it was I just came up with a number out of my head and said, yeah, that's close to 20 bucks an hour. That seems about right. You know, and, and what can we afford? That's, I mean, that's part of it too. Like, what can we afford to pay, you know, and, and work for it to make sense? You know, I mean, so, you know, over 10 days, that's 750 bucks. For a lot of people, like, can they even come up with that? If you can't, maybe you're not really, I hate to say it this way, maybe you should be going on vacation. Um, I, I hate to say that because vacation doesn't have to be expensive. Right, I mean, I, I remember when I was broke, a vacation for me was I threw the tent and, and stuff in the car, and I drove out to a campground that cost me, you know, ten fifteen bucks a night to camp. Spent three days camping, 
food you're going to eat anyway. I'd go fishing and catch my own food. You know, if you go the right time of year, you might do a little forage and drink a couple of beers. Well, I'm going to drink a couple of beers and eat some food anyway. So I'm out the gas and, you know, 30, 40 bucks. But I also lived in a one-bedroom apartment, didn't have animals to take care of, didn't have to pay somebody. So I know this doesn't really affect John here that called in, but, you know, there is that kind of like, there is an upper limit of what you can afford to pay. Because I kind of look at it this way. Let's say it's going to take a person two hours to take care of your farm. But they got to go there every day, and they got to go home. So what's that? Is that going to eat an hour or two of their day? It's going to disrupt their day. So call it four hours, right? So at four hours of their time being taken up, because this is contract work, right? This is not this is not an employee that you're going to pay for the rest of you know the year or something like that. They're going to come in, do the work for a couple weeks, and go away. And it, so that's you know another part of just understanding how what it takes to get somebody to do that. Is it going to take them away from their job? Well, for some people, it's an opportunity. Some people get lots of vacation time, never use it all, and they'd see an opportunity like this. You know what I'll do? I'll take a week and a half vacation. I'll get my vacation pay plus 50, 70 bucks a day, whatever it is, to do this, and I'll just go hang out in the student's farm. And to me, that's like a vacation. Some people would have to take vacation time to do it, be willing to do it, and feel like I'm actually giving up my vacation for this. So it's all negotiable. But I, I think you're in the realm for someone that can actually run a small farm and keep your animals alive and keep the production where it needs to be, and when you come back, things will be at least as good as they were before you left, a minimum of $15, $20 an hour. I just think that's kind of where you're at with it. And if you can get it for less and the person's going to do a great job, fine. That's great. Maybe it means you can go away more often. I think that you're, you know, if you can, if you can get someone that's kind of an intern to, to leave a farm, because by the time you leave, you know they know their shit, and then pay them beyond whatever they make for their internship, because now they're full on taking care of it. That's what Greg Judy does, you know. But I think a farm has to be pretty functional financially to warrant internships. You know, I had Joe here as an intern, and the big problem was we didn't have anywhere near enough production to really warrant an intern. So he became more of an intern in, in the TSP business side of things um, because there just was only so much to do on the property from a, a, a regular routine standpoint. We were in a very much a building mode. Where if I think I've often thought about if I brought an intern in now, I could just say, here's your schedule, hit it. And you know, we'll maybe put aside an hour a day for me working with you to teach you stuff, but otherwise here, just do this every day. And for those of you that are thinking about internships on your farm, that's what you have to have going on. You can't have an intern show up and not know exactly what you're going to have them doing that day. It's a disaster. Let me throw that in for you. Anyway, the best I can do for you, John. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Ben in Lakewood, Colorado, just a little bit uh, west of Denver. Um, I uh, had a question for you. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on raising partridges for egg or meat production. I uh, recently went to the chicken swap, and we picked up our first batch of a couple of chicks to get our chicken, you know, get our bird knowledge started and kind of start down that road. And somebody there had partridges for sale, and they said that they were basically about the same as raising quail for egg production and meat production. So uh, that's just something I've never heard you mention before. Uh, maybe you have, and I just haven't uh, haven't heard that episode, but... Um, I'm just curious what your what your thoughts were on raising partridges. Uh, thanks, man. Love the show. Have a good one.
it, it's not something I've ever really looked into. I did a little bit today, and my conclusion thus far is as follows. I would not recommend it as an alternative to quail. Okay, so take the totality of that in. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying if you're choosing and you're wanting to do this to produce meat and eggs and you're, you're comparing it to quail, don't do it to quail. Um, here's why from egg production alone. So this is from uh, N NCBI, uh, which is part of uh, NIH.gov. And it's about trials in egg production and sexual maturity and persistency of lay in, in partridges. So this is like, this is just a, a straight up research study. How do you get them to lay best? And, and what do they do? What, what, what's the result? So I'm just going to read it to you because it's not that long. In two separate trials, aids at sexual maturity, lay of first egg, and total eggs laid in a 13-week production period were determined for a chugger partridge given simulatory light at 16, 18, 20, 22, 24, 26, 28, and 30 weeks of age. The best response occurred with hens given simulatory light when 26 weeks of age or older. More than 85% of these hens laid, and production ranged from 15 to 20 eggs per hen. Now remember, that's a 13-week cycle. 13 weeks, they gave 15 to 25 eggs per hen. Just keep that in mind. The youngest at first egg was 161 days old. Keep that in mind, 161 days old. Required by one hen giving a simulatory light at 16 weeks. Many hens given simulatory light at 24 weeks or younger failed to lay. So even at 24 weeks, many of them did not lay even when given proper light cycles. Okay, And egg production was extremely poor in those that did lay. Based on our results, best egg production can be attained when birds are given simulatory light at 28 weeks. Keep 28 weeks in mind. Allowed to lay for 13 weeks, okay, then cycled to lay again when 50 weeks of age. Hens of superior laying ability can be detected in the first cycle of lay, thus reducing the time it would be required to identify these same birds if allowed to lay under natural daylight conditions. So this is what we do. We raise our girls to 28 weeks and we put them in the right light cycle, which is probably 14 hours of light for most birds. They'll then lay for 13 weeks, And they're going to give us 15 to 25 eggs in those 13 weeks. Then we have to wait till they're 50 weeks of age, almost a year. And then they'll give us another cycle of 13 weeks and give us another 15 to 25 eggs. Let's compare this to a Cortnix quail. Cortnix quail will lay like clockwork at seven to eight weeks of age. They will start laying if you give them 14 hours of light. Okay. Bang on. I mean, when the, my group, it's like they were like seven weeks and two days old, and I wasn't even thinking about eggs, and I went in there and went, holy crap, there's eggs in there. You know, and all that was just leave the light on in the garage till nine o'clock, and I go off and shut it off. So, I'm, I'm, seven weeks, okay, is 49 days. The youngest in this trial to lay was at 161 days. Many at 24 weeks were, uh, failed to lay, and most didn't lay until 28 weeks. 28 weeks. Okay, 28 times 7, 20 times 7 plus 8 times, okay, uh, 196. 
196 days. 196 days? Versus about 49, 50 days to get eggs. Now what's the quail going to do for us? They'll lay damn near at 100% as long as you keep the light cycle right. But let's assume they're going to give us 20 eggs a month. Okay? So if they're giving 20 eggs a month, which is quite low, by the way, that's going very conservative. Uh, over a 13-week period, they're going to give us about 60 eggs is how that number works out. 60 over 13 weeks or 15 to 25 over 13 weeks. And I wait 49 days or 196 days to get my first egg. Bird meat-wise is pretty similar, about the same size. Partridge is a little bit bigger, but not that much. Takes longer to get to weight. You, you see where I'm going here? Okay, next. If you want support for quail, you need have questions, you need answers, you got to find someone else doing it. It's one of the most kept game birds in America. Partridge, not so much. So, if, if your goal is egg and meat production, want want for the partridge. If you were going to raise them in some sort of a large aviary system or whatever, is game birds for preserves or is for super high quality um, uh, meat for gourmet usage or something like that? Sure, fine. But as a, a small homestead producer, I mean, unless you live in a place where it's legal to stock, because there's places where these things live wild, and you have a big piece of land, you're kind of raising them to stock for your own property to hunt with bird dogs or something. Nah, -uh, quail, man. Quail all the way. Just based on pure numbers. Um, in fact, it's so one-sided that a lot of times when somebody brings something like this to me, I'll spend a couple of weeks faring it out further. Unless someone has some earth-shattering information for me, I'm done with these guys now. Um, I know enough to know they don't compare. Hey, Jack, Jensen Hickory here with a food storage question for you. Um, <clears throat> how much food would be appropriate to store for neighbors in the event of an emergency situation? Um, I'm not really sure how much we would need for you know people that just come knocking if things kind of get serious. Uh, I've got two apartment complexes kind of close by with probably like – 50 to 100 households, and I know I can't feed them all, but I would like to be able to help some if they showed up. Uh, also, how would you store something like that? Because I don't think really putting it in, you know, a big five-gallon mylar bag is going to be very useful for those people, like maybe smaller bags that could be distributed more easily or something like that. Appreciate your thoughts. Bye. Okay, um... I'm going to take a totally different angle with this than the caller's asking me to, because the angle the caller's taking is such that if you follow that angle, the answer is you can't do it, so don't worry about it. I mean, really, like, I have a couple apartment complexes near me. Well, you're screwed if you think you're going to have food for people to just stop by and get. So th this is the wrong thinking. I do teach that it makes sense to store enough food that if others need help, you can help them. But... I also do that from a standpoint, it's not really so much just a prepper standpoint, but a moral and ethical one. And this is what I mean by moral and ethical. My grandmother, especially my grandmother on my dad's side, if you came near that house at dinner time, you were eating dinner. If you came near the house at dinner time, then we're going to go get another chair out of the other room, put it at the table, and we're going to make a space for you, and you're going to sit down, and you're going to eat. Even if when we were going to eat that night, we were going to probably all wish we had a little bit more of it because we only had so much portion to go around, 
there was still room for another person. When someone comes to your home, you feed them. Okay, that's a a very ethical thing that was instilled in me in a very young age. And it'll never go away. And it's kind of how I feel. You come here, I'm going to feed you. <laughs> Probably more than you wanted. Um, and I think we have to just transcend that through his preppers. The more you have, the more you're called on to give to help others where and as you can. That said, from a food storage standpoint, I always teach your first goal is to store 30 days worth of food for you and your family. And then do it again and get to 60. And do a third of that one more time and get to 90 days. And at 90 days, if you want to say, this is enough food storage for me and my own, I th God bless you, maintain that shit, and focus on other things in your prepping life. Now, you'd say, but what about 90 days of feeding other people? How many other people? How many other people? One? Five? Ten? Random people that show up and go, hey, I hear you have food. That See, people think because I don't hide what I do that I'm like the guy that would just put up a sign, free food here during a catechism or something. No. No. That's not what I mean. Here's how this works. You have 90 days worth of food stored up. This isn't to feed the two complexes down from you. These are people you actually know, at least in passing. And if the problem's a week-long problem, you only need a week of your 90 days of reserves right now. So taking another, just one other family in and saying, you know what, we're going to look after you this week, and maybe one other. Now that only takes away, let's say, three weeks worth of your stores. Well, when the crisis is over, all you got to do is build up those three weeks. It's not that that food is for, this is, this is ours. And this is for the people that come looking for food. Now, if you want to shove, you know, a, a few buckets in the back of the basement or something of rice and beans and shell corn and stuff like that, and, and be, you know, like, if we do end up in this kind of refugee thing and anybody asks for help, I'll give them a cup of corn, a cup of beans, and tell them that's all I got. Well, fine. I think the, the, the practicality of that actually becoming a reality is pretty low for you. But... If you wanted to take that approach, I wouldn't fault you for it. I'd, I'd understand what you're getting at. I'd understand your point that you, you, you've done it for. And I'd say it's better than just telling everybody to go to hell. So, so God bless you for it. You know, but I don't think that we need to be thinking of this is mine and then this over here is for everybody else. This is mine. This is Aunt Sue's food. This is Tom's food. See, to me, this is very much like some of you couples that get married and keep your money separately. See, I think that's dumb. I think it's really, really dumb. Because what you're saying is, I don't trust my partner with my money, but I'll lay down next to them in bed every night and go to sleep with them and trust my life to them. And what are you going to do if your spouse loses their job for a while? Say, well, you have to pay your half of the mortgage. I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. Marriages are a merger. You merge everything. Now, I've heard people say something like, well, so, you know, he had a whole bunch of debt, or she had a whole bunch of debt. Yeah, well, if you're deciding to get married, it just became y'all's debt. And if you don't look at it that way, you're not going to fix the problem. And sooner or later, both of you are going to be in a bunch of debt. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be miserable. And I know people doing it that it's happened to. So we, we have to look at, from an ethics-based standpoint, 
that that which I don't need belongs to my neighbor in need. Okay? And that doesn't mean go give all your shit away. But that does mean if you look in your closet and you go, holy crap, how did I get so many clothes? And you start digging through it, and you go, I haven't worn this shit in five years. Take that shit to Goodwill or something for damn, I mean, really? What are you doing keeping that crap? Let me tell you another thing. You go through your closet every day, and as you're going through, you look at a shirt and go, I don't want to wear that shirt today. And the next day you go, I don't want to wear that shirt. And like you've been doing that for months with that one shirt. You hadn't worn it in months. And you see, it's not one you forgot about in the back. You don't like it anymore. Put it on somebody's naked back. right? And that's how we have to look at food storage. We don't store food for the purpose of supporting ourselves in our neighborhood for a year or a month or whatever. We store food to, to, to first and foremost take care of our families. And then when a crisis arises, we evaluate the crisis. Is this the end of the world as we know it? 91 days from now, when we're out of our 90 days worth of food, we are screwed? Or is there a bunch of trees down nobody can get anywhere, and we're going to be all right a week from now? We handle our, our dispersion of assistance differently. Because if people say, well, if you were really ethically, you'd give until it hurt. No, I wouldn't. If I give away everything I have, I now become a burden on somebody else. So my first obligation is to myself so that I'm not a burden on my brethren. Okay. My next obligation is to those I can help. Not to those I want to help, to those I can help. Because if I try to help too many people, I actually don't do enough. So let's say I have enough food that I can support three families on my block for five days. And I'm going to be pretty much out. But I think in five days we're going to be good. Well, if I give everybody up and down the street one day's worth of food, the five families I could have helped go hungry for four days, and so do I. And now we're all burdens. We've, we've now all added to the totality of the burden. But if I evaluate that and say, yeah, I get this. I understand what's going on here. This is going to be okay. Here's the people that I, I can help. Here's the people that I actually believe deserve my help because of the fact that they've been valuable members of my community. They've never done anything bad to me, what have you. This guy here is kind of a dick, but overall I know he's really not that bad a guy. I don't want his kids to go hungry. I know he's got kids. I'm going to help this group of people. That's what I can do effectively. So that's what I'm going to do. So when I store food... I'm storing it for a duration that will support my family, and then I'm making divisions of that duration based on the situation that's at hand and my ability to resupply. Right. So if I'm financially doing fine and I burn through three weeks in one week because I'm helping a couple other families, and when that week's over and all the swell from it kind of goes back down, I'm just going to make one big trip to a couple stores And, re and pull all my stuff to the front, restock the back, and go on with life, then I'm going to do it. If I think we're going to be in a bad way for 30 days or more, and I've got 30 days worth of food, I'm probably not sharing. Not voluntarily, anyway. And again, it's not selfishness. It's not selfishness. It's, I don't want to become the burden of somebody else. 
Because and I'm I'm I don't want to be put in a position where I feel like you know what now my kid's starving I'm going to take somebody else's shit, right? So the odds though, guys, that you're going to have to go more than 30 days with no ability to acquire any other supplies in this country in any disaster is extremely low. The reason we shoot for that I like a six month time horizon. It's not about being prepared for an apocalypse. It's about being prepared for losing your job, having major financial difficulties or something like that. At least you're going to put food on the table, that type of thing. So I hope that helps you. I hope that helps everybody understand the concept of feeding your neighbors during a disaster. It's a moral and ethical thing, but your highest ethical moral requirement is to take care of yourself and your family. But as soon as you know you have enough to make it, then the surplus you need to use to help others where and as you can. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack Ryan in Central Oregon, Armogi on the forums in Zello. I've got a question about buying rental houses. In episode 1661, your follow-up with Nicole Foss, you mentioned a strategy for buying rental houses that I'd like you to expand on. All I hear are extremes like mortgaging everything you own to maximize profit or only paying cash for every piece of real estate. I'm looking for a more moderate, moderate approach, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. All right. I've been a landlord once for several years, and it financially worked out, and I didn't like it, and I probably won't do it again. But there's a lot of business models that I can look at and say, well, I don't want to do them, but I will acknowledge that they work, and, and, and landlording is one of them. And what you've said you've seen is either the recommendation that you buy all real estate cash, own it full outright, and then use paid-for real estate as rental property probably comes from, I don't know, Dave Ramsey, okay? And then the, the idea that you 100% leverage debt and, and, and do everything you can to get money scraped up and, 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 and buy whatever you can and then rent it probably comes from people that, I don't know, want to sell you how to get rich with real estate. I don't like extremists in just about anything. I, I don't like extremes. This is why I piss everybody off, because I never gravitate to an extreme. I always say, what is the most logical viewpoint here? So, debt is a form of leverage. It allows me to control... See, debt is, is, a, is a sword with two, two edges. Debt can just be a way to acquire shit that I want because I want it now and not wait till later when I can afford to buy it. That's, that's acquisition from a standpoint of material goods and things that I want in my life. From a business standpoint, debt is a leverage tool. And what it allows me to do is control something for a fraction of the cost of, of, of truly owning it. It's like buying a stock on margin, but with real estate, it can be a hell of a lot less risky. So what I mean by that is I've got this house I'm looking at, and it's going to sell for around $100,000. And I don't have a problem coming up, let's say, 10% down for conventional loan. 10%. So here's my $10,000. I go to a bank. They give me a loan on $90,000. Now, if it's a rental property there's probably some things that I need to do to make it attractive. So let's say I need uh, $10,000 to remodel the home. I can do that in the form of a loan. 
I can get the mortgage for more than I need to buy the house if it appraises well. I can go out and get a home equity line of credit on it or what have you. But one way or another, I need to come up with another $10,000. So, so to play this game with those numbers, I need $20,000. By the way, with closing costs and all, I need more like $25,000 to $30,000 for this one house if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do it that way. And people say, well, I don't have that money. Then you're not ready to invest yet. See, recently we just did a show where people said, well, how much money should I have before I start investing? And I said at least $30,000 saved up in safe cash and cash equivalents for you even think about investing. Well, that applies to houses too. It's, that doesn't just apply to mutual fund stocks and gold bars. I mean, so, well, I only have 30, so I can only invest in one thing. So then you have to decide, do you want to break it up through securities and bars of silver and gold or whatever it is you want to invest in, or do you want to go to real estate? You know, and you looked at the risks of each. So now we do that. Now, I was I was going to wait till Monday to cover this because because I was asked by Jake, who listens to the show and has for years, to explain again how you sell a house. It's so similar to renting out a house that I'm going to cover them kind of both together here because this model could be I buy the house, I fix it up, I flip it, or I buy the house, I, I fix it up, and I rent it. And I'll talk about the advantages financially on both of these. So... The way you rent or sell a house is very simple. You look at the market that you're in, and you look at the going rate for houses like you have. What do they rent for? What do they sell for? And you, So as an investor now, you look at what you're going to have to pay for the house, what you're going to have to put into it, and say, is the spread enough to be worth the risk of the money and the work involved? So... If I'm going to make $10,000 selling the house, if everything goes right, and that comes out to an 8% return, and I'm going to do that in 90 days, that's a pretty good annualized ROI. Real estate flippers tend to try to do better than that, but if you could do you know, a few of those a year, you come out okay. If you're going to rent the property, once I'm all in on the property, what is going to be my cash flow against the debt? So if I'm going to have to spend $850 every month to pay the principal, the interest, the insurance, all that shit, and I can rent the property for $1,250, technically I make $400 a month in my pocket while somebody else pays my mortgage for me and starts buying equity on my behalf. That's why this is so financially lucrative. And, it, and done over time, it becomes very, very lucrative, assuming you keep occupancy in the property. Okay, so now where does the similarity come in with effectively renting a property or buying it? Every single person that looks at your house has made a decision that I want to or am open to the idea of living in this area. Otherwise, they wouldn't look right. And if they are looking because they're on vacation and just like to look at shit, well, that's fine. They don't apply. Right. So you wouldn't go look at a house in Mansfield, Texas, if you want to live in Denton, Texas, because they're very far apart. So you've settled to an area. You're looking at a house because it has a number associated with $1,250 a month, $125,500 to buy it. You have a budget. If you have a budget of $130,000, your real estate agent might get you to look at something for $140. If they're a dumbass, they might show you a $180,000 house and get fired by you. But in general, if you have a budget of $130, you're going to look at houses between about $110 and $130. Okay? That means that you can look at the market and see every other house 
in that neighborhood that's in your budget. And what you do is you make your house at least 1% better. If everybody has crappy countertops, you put high-end laminate countertops in. If everybody has high-end laminate countertops, you put in base granite countertops. If everybody has base hard surface granite type, you go one level up. If everybody has shitty-looking white tile, you put in some nice travertine or something like that. If everybody's carpet is extremely worn and crappy and yours is in pretty good shape, you just give it a good shampoo cleaning. Professional. If if everybody's carpet is okay, you put new carpet in. Builder beige. You paint neutral colors. You get it professionally cleaned. And then you put it on the market right at the top of the budget where you know you're 1% to 5% better. And the first person that's committed to living there at that budget that sees your house will either buy it or rent it. Every single time. I'm telling you, we have mastered this. We have sold every house that we've ever sold in under 10 days. Every single one. And we've always followed that, and it would work the same for rental. All right? So that's the model. But if you think there's another way to make the money like appear out of thin air... There isn't. You have to come up with money. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is how the rental model works to your advantage. When It's just like buying a house in a way, because you are. So you buy this house, and you rent it out for 10 years. Assuming you've bought in the right location, and you've maintained the house well, and you've had a good tenant that didn't dance. See, this is why I don't like it. Tenants break shit. Okay? And that $400, you want to make $400, you better be making $650. And every time the money comes in, 400 is for you, cash flow into your bank account, your investments, whatever. 250 goes into a slush fund. Create a separate little bank account to put that shit into. And that's your reserve. And when something breaks, you go to that first to fix it. Because when the toilet overflows and they need a plumber, it's your problem, not theirs. You write a rental agreement, and you better make sure in your rental agreement the basic stuff that a tenant should take care of, they take care of. This is not an apartment building. You plunge your toilet before I send a, a plumber. That type of thing. It's another reason I don't like it. But assuming it all goes well, you get five years into it, you have an appraiser come out and appraise your home. And that appraiser says, this home is now worth $160,000. And you look at the numbers, and you have $50,000 worth of equity now. And you have a tenant paying you. Probably a different tenant than the one you started with, but you have a tenant paying you. Your rent should be higher than it was ten, five years ago, right? Because rents go up. As the cost of living goes up, rents go up. But your cost on the property, other than the taxes, is fixed and locked. And when you acquire enough equity, the other thing you do is you go back and you, you cut $60, $70 a month in insurance, your, your PMI uh, insurance off just by doing that. So that frees up more cash flow. So then you go to a bank and say, look, I have a rental property. I have five years of history of revenue off this property now. I know this isn't going as fast as you guys want to, and it doesn't sell late-night real estate commercials, but it's the way you actually get rich over about 30 years in real estate if you want to do this. And you say, I'm profitable. I make $650 profit. They don't really care about the $250 you put in the slush fund. They care about the raw numbers. I've been doing it for five years. My occupancy rate's 95%. 
I want to buy a new property, and I want to take equity out of this property. I have $50,000 worth of equity here. I want $30,000 worth of my equity. Well, hell, they just give you a home equity loan anyway. But you wrap it up like that. You make it part of your next mortgage. Now you go shopping for the next opportunity, and you're looking for the house that's that's doesn't show well, that doesn't look good, but it's in the, the neighborhoods that are desirable, that needs to be fixed up, but it shows like a turd. But it's an inexpensive turd to polish. And then you have a significant amount of cash to work with and probably a pretty good approval rate. And you go buy another house. And maybe it doesn't take five years to do this. Maybe it takes three. Maybe it takes seven. It depends on how good you are at it. You get your second one. You take the same approach that I've already described. You put a tenant in it. Now, if you do your remodel smart and you have positive cash flow, you can go back to the bank and leverage that again. But you understand the difference here. I actually now have less risk. You have two houses. Yeah, but I'm probably going to keep at least one tenant. If I lose my one tenant with one house, I went from 100% occupancy to zero. If I have two houses, two tenants, and I lose a tenant for a couple of months and I need to find a new tenant, I'm at 50% occupancy. Some of that money can now be diverted over to this house to cover. So now I want to get a third one as quick as possible because now if I lose a tenant, I'm still at 77% occupancy. And the sweet spot to me is four houses. Four houses, good cash flow, I can lose any tenant anytime, and the system still covers all the bills and still put some money in the slush fund to fix whatever breaks. The key is good tenants, good screening of tenants because when you get a crappy tenant, it's very difficult to get them out. Now I hold those houses... And I end up at some point able to sell them, harvest all the equity out of them, and all that equity that's in them, somebody else put that money in there, not me. And real estate traditionally does very well over time. Now, if we go into a deflationary economy, which I think is highly possible, no, I didn't say probably, highly possible, in the next 10 years, you could lose your ass. Unless you buy really smart. And people still have to have some place to live. And because you're in a deflationary economy, it's very hard for them to access money to buy a house. Therefore, rental opportunities actually go up, not down. So the landlord is at an advantage in an inflation or a deflationary economy. That's actually good. To, it's good to be a landlord. It's not like it can't be good otherwise, but it's good to be a landlord in a deflationary economy, especially if you entered the market before the deflation. It seems counterintuitive, but it's not because, again, what? Because all you, now, if you're trying to rent out places that rent for $9,000 a month, you've got a different problem. If you're in that entry level to one level above, There's always people being knocked out of the next level up down to your level to rent your property from you. The higher you go in rental per unit, the less that's true. And the higher people go up, the more stable they become. The, the people that make $500,000 a year, a lot of times they go right through recessions like nothing ever happened to them. But the people that, that live in $250,000 houses... They're the ones that get knocked out and have to go rent something that would sell for $150. You got plenty of opportunity to rent to them. So that's how that works. Now, the sell model. 
The cell model is pretty much the same, but here's, here's the icing on the cake for selling a home. You do the same thing. You evaluate everything for sale in your zip code and maybe some adjoining zip codes. What's, what's available that's comparable? Now, every real estate agent does this. This is where it goes to shit. The house selling for $100,000 more can be used to come up with a fair market value of your home, but the person that's looking at that house isn't going to buy your house. And the person looking at your house isn't going to buy that, that house. So you have to find comps that are within 10% of your target sales price. And if they're not in your zip code, go like this. Glory, glory, hallelujah, I'm going to sell the shit out of my house, okay? I know that's confusing, but just trust me. You're going to sell the shit out of your house, okay? Now just go, just go to all the adjoining zip codes and find some houses in that price range. Some comps that are really in that price range. And make your house 1% to 5% better than them. You'll sell your house like that. Faster than even if there's 5 or 6 in your area and you're 1% to 5% better and about the same price. Or even a little bit higher. Why? You're the only one. Somebody looking for a house in that neighborhood is, is married to that ideal. I want to live here. I want to be in this. And it doesn't matter why. I want to be down the road from work, whatever it is. They want to be in that area. And they're the only one in their price range. And you look and like, okay, I, I, I could settle and move 10 miles over to the east where I don't want to be, but this house is better. Or, or what's happened is the person that was looking 10 miles to the east comes 10 miles to the west to you and is open to the idea of being a little further away than whatever it is they were married to in their head. And they walk into your house and go, Well, this is nice. Look at they fixed every, this is moving ready. I wouldn't have to do shit. This is better than what I looked at for the same price. So either you you have them by the short hairs because you're the only one or they've been pushed out and you're the only option or there's five or six that would work but yours is just a little bit better and then they get competitive with each other. Because their agent says, yeah, this has been on the market for like three days. Now, here's the icing. You make a book. And I think this would work for landlords too, but for selling, this is cold. In that book, you set dividers up, and you explain everything in your home, where it is and how it works. Where's the, where's the, where's the, the, um, the circuit breaker panel? What does? Take a picture of it. Just right next to it, write what every... Because you put tape on there and shit, it falls off, it gets old, it fades. Just take a picture of it, print it out, and then on a, put, paste it on a piece of paper, oven, stove, arrow there, like that, right? How to reset the hot water heater if it trips off. Anything you have in your house, that need, where all the GFIs are, right? Ground fault indicator circuits, GFICs. Right. If these if these plugs go off over here, the GFI forts in the in the guest bathroom, go push this button. Okay, with a picture of it, paste it right the hell on there. Everything like that. If you have a pool, how much chlorine and when is average, how to test it, where where you buy your supplies. If you have a pool guy, what's his name, how much he does it for, what his phone number is, all that shit. You pick a you put a pet thing in there that says restaurants and entertainment. You put your 10 to 20 favorite restaurants, where they are, any specials they have. You put the schools in there, where they are, what schools they are. You know, K through through 5 is here, 5 through 7 is there, 8 through 12, whatever. Like, 
however it is, where they are, the schools. If there's any information you can get on the schools that's good shit about them, print it off of their website, three-hole binder, punch a hole in them, put it in there. So you got the elementary school, good shit. Middle school, good shit. High school, good shit about it. Okay? Where to get, where to get gas? Best price on gas in the area is address, picture of the pump with a sign on it. Okay? Who your electric company is. All the service providers that provide internet, DSL, cable modem, and what they offer. So when they walk in and go, can I get DSL here? I can get AT&T DSL. I get Comcast cable internet. Okay. I, 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 that question is answered for me, you see? And everything you can think of, every reason you liked where you lived, every convenience, where's the water company? where you go pay your, your utility bills. What day is trash pickup? You basically make an owner's manual for your home. Now, I want you to put... Now, this is... this is. I could make this a product and sell it online. I could sell this for $499. I could make it a, a eight-hour infomercial type, you know, walk-through video. Here's how to do it. It's all bullshit and fluff, though. I've just told you what to do. Now, put yourself... And, and a person that bought it and did it to sell their house and go... Best 500 bucks I ever spent. I have had real estate agents that have met me and say, if everybody in America knew what you knew, we wouldn't have a flipping job. Okay? Honest to God, I've had that more than one time. So I want you to put yourself in the perspective of a buyer now. I've had my agent, or I've gone online, and I've found five houses I want to look at. I go look at the first four. I go in there, and it's okay. It needs some work. This is... Uh, yeah, okay. Now, I walk into this house. It smells like new paint. Maybe it smells, maybe at least one room is, it smells like new carpet or they've, they've had it professionally carpet cleaned. All the clutter's moved out of the way. Either it's vacant or I'm telling you, if you're moving somewhere and you already have the other property, take half your shit out of the house. So stage it nicely. I'm not talking about expensive staging and buying furniture. That's crap. Stage nicely. If you're still around and you know someone's coming, light a little candle, a little scented candle, throw some cookies in the oven, right? Throw some cookies in the oven, turn the oven off, and crack the oven open and walk out the door when, you're, when your agent tells you that they're on the way. If you have dogs, have your damn thing cleaned every week. Spray for breeze everywhere. Get your dogs the hell out of the way. Person walks into that. The house smells new. It looks new. It feels new. Everything about it seems great. It's a little bit better than everything else. You walk by and you go, oh, those, those countertops are. Just fill in the blank. Everything else is cheap. Yours is just a little bit better. Everything's painted. There's this book. What's this? A guide to your new home. That's what you put on the, on the cover. Pick it up. Open it up. Schools. Library. Circuit breaker picture. Who the hell does that? You know what that person's thinking? You could have treated that house like shit for seven years and just cleaned it up the day before you decided to sell it. They're thinking, this person is meticulous. This? Because in their, see, buyers want to, they want, buyers are in a fantasy mode. They want to find the amazing house that's just for them, that some little old lady took care of like a baby. You're creating that dream for them. Circuit breakers? GF, what's a GFI? And they really say, oh, that's these things. That's why my power kept going out. That guy was charging me to fix it? Maybe it wasn't even what he was doing. They don't know. Schools? Look at that. 
highest test score in the county. I didn't know a house like this was in that school district. All the schools lie. Let them do it for you, right? Restaurants? Look, we love to go to Fridays. There's a Fridays here. It's right there. There's specials on Thursdays. What house are you going to buy? What house are you going to buy? And well, we don't have 10 restaurants around. Then put the two that you have in there and figure out what you, what do you have? Parks. Museums. The, it doesn't matter if you are into it. Symphonies, whatever. You know? People like to buy shit that's associated with shit, even if they don't like the shit it's associated with. There's people like, we're, there, there's, there's symphonies in Fort Worth. It's only 15 minutes from here. Ever been to one? No. But they'll, they'll still artsy fartsy tell their friends shit like that. That's it. That's the gold. And you do that a little bit less, but pretty much the same thing if you want to rent a property. My problem with renting properties, I don't like to deal with people. And I like to deal with people in control of my property even less. And as a landlord, you're not in control of your property, your tenant is. And if your tenant stops paying the rent, it's not like you just walk over there and say, come on, out you go. It doesn't work that way. It takes a long time to get a tenant out. And when a tenant knows they're going to be thrown out, they start trashing the shit out of stuff. And when you finally do get them out of there, your refrigerator's gone, electrical cables ripped out of the walls, uh, floors tore up, countertops are tore up. Um, and it, 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 it's sometimes even hard to not take certain tenants. You get accused of discrimination or something like that. And as a landlord, I want to discriminate. I'm going to discriminate as a landlord. I'm not going to discriminate against you because of your color or your sex or whatever, but your ability to pay, like your history of taking care of property, if you look like a freaking slob, I'm going to assume that you are. I don't want a slob in my property. So the flipping model, if I was going to go into real estate as a, as a business model, is much more appealing to me because I do the deal, I get my return, and I'm gone. It doesn't have the long-term equity climb game. All right? And it doesn't have another thing. See, as a landlord, every year you take a depreciation expense against the property. Your house actually, you, you on paper, your house goes down in value while in reality it's going up in value. And I can't remember the tax code number, but there's a certain rollover that when you decide to sell that house, you end up basically eating all that depreciation as a capital gain. But if you then buy another property and roll the equity into it, you eliminate it again and again and again and again and again and again. And you can keep buying more and more and bigger and bigger properties. It's 1106 or something like that, something rollover, okay? Um, since I don't really want to go in that business. I've not dug deeper in that. But that's another way that you can play that. But the flipping model is powerful because the day the house closes and I walk away with my money, you could have a rat factory and the rats could infest the walls and shit up the roof and you could bring in 25 straight cats to pee on everything and eat the rats and like have a rat cat plantation in your house and I don't care. In fact, it might be good because someday I might send some guys in there with chemical suits when I buy it in foreclosure and do it again, right? Because I'm not cleaning it up. And guys, I've watched some house flipping shows that are that bad. The one lady had like 40 cats and it was, and they bought the house without being able to go inside it. I wouldn't advise stuff like that, but there's your formula. And that pretty much wraps it up. It's, it's, it's really a powerful business model. We've always done it as, 
how to sell the home that we're in that we want to go to a different place. Um, but because of moving for work and, and what have you, you know, we and buying a second home and, and what have you, moving to Arkansas and back, we have quite a bit of experience with it. We've sold one, two, three, four, five houses that way, and I guess we just sold my father-in-law's. But that one, we didn't do any of that stuff. Um, that market was so hot that we had a great agent, and she said, just throw it out there the way it is, and, and it did. It sold, like, we had crazy offers on that house. But the other houses we sold, we didn't sell into hot markets. You know, we sold them into, I mean, I remember when I sold my house in Arlington. We were in the middle of the recession. And people were like, Jack, you say you're going to sell your house? I'm going to argue, ah, you're going to sell your house right now. Like a week later, I'm like, yeah, we sold the house. And, and, and people were like, how? And I, this is it. This is all you do. And we always do that with a house We, but we don't wait till we're going to sell it. We, when we buy a house, we look at it and go, what are all the things we don't like? And we make decisions about how much to spend on remodeling and doing cabinets and things like that based on, based on the fact that one day we might sell the house. And I don't want to be keeping up with the Joneses if the Joneses down the road have a half million dollar house. But if I'm in a $200,000 house and the $200,000 houses are selling right now, I can take a look at them and see how they're done. I want to go a little bit better than that. Not for ego, but I'm building in assurance that I can liquidate the property. I'm actually prepping by doing that. I'm prepping for the eventuality that I might need to or want to sell the property. And this is where we start making prepping a lot bigger than just you know saving beans, bullets, and band-aids. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow I'll have the expert counsel up for you. A couple of my people that were piking out have de-piked and sent in responses, so we'll have a pretty good batter lineup tomorrow for the expert counsel. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, call 866-65-THINK. I have wide open for next week. If you call from now until Thursday of next week, uh, Thursday morning next week, you will almost 100% be on the show, 866-65-THINK. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You said the only thing harder than saying goodbye was saying hello after all. I ran into you with your new loving told You say you worry about me and you want to know How am I getting back? Thank you, I'm holding now Don't you worry about me no more Hurt me when you left me There's two sides to every door And the life you left behind Has led to lives I'd never know Thank you, I'm holding my own Your new love walked on Some sweet time 
Thank you, I'm holding my